Hello, and welcome to the IQT Podcast. Today's episode is hosted by BeNext, the life sciences arm of IQT that continues to identify, vet, and execute strategic investments in biotechnologies. BeNext's work is dedicated to the essential task of scaling up and industrializing the rapid design and manufacturing of medical countermeasures, particularly diagnostics and vaccines. This podcast series focuses on the technologies needed to fight the threat that infectious disease epidemics pose to national security and beyond. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. I'm Kevin O'Connell, Vice President at BeNext, which is the life sciences arm of IQT. Today, I'm joined by my colleagues, Tommy Jones and Chenny Zheng from IQT. Our topic today is diagnostic testing for SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. Uh, before we dive in, Chenny, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your roles at IQT? Sure, Kevin. So Tommy and I sit on the technology program side of Incutel, and I'm specifically on the PM team, which essentially works with our portfolio companies, many of them, to develop enhanced products for our government customers. And what does PM stand for again? Oh, right. Program management team. So we have a lot of programs that you know develop enhanced products, and then we handle the transfer to government customers. My background, startups, Cisco, uh, networking companies, essentially. Terrific. Thanks. And Tommy, how about you? Yeah, I'm a member of the technical staff. So what I do is uh, help source companies and I'm responsible for technical vetting. Sorts of companies that I tend to focus on are like machine learning and and AI startups. But in terms of my uh, educational background, I'm a statistician by training, uh, which I know will, will come up a little bit later. I've worked several roles inside and outside of government in uh, more traditional statistical roles, as well as doing machine learning and startups and such. Great. Thanks. So now jumping into our topic today, SARS-CoV-2 testing. Testing has been a topic very much in the news since the beginning of the, uh, of the pandemic back in early this year. And testing for SARS-CoV-2 is playing a critical central role in combating the outbreak. You know, the test results are used by doctors to help make treatment decisions. They're used by public health workers to track and limit the spread of the disease, and also by epidemiologists who are studying and fighting the spread of COVID-19 at the population level. But there's more than 200 SARS-CoV-2 tests that have received an authorization from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. There are more than that globally. And the number of these tests keep growing. With so many tests available, people who need these tests have a really big job in figuring out which tests are compatible with their particular use cases. Where they need to use them, whether that's the laboratory or a clinic, soon there'll be home testing available. Are the tests compatible with what equipment users already have? And also understanding what is known about how well each of the tests perform. So... For our listeners, Chenny and Tommy and I are part of a team at IQT and BeNext that work to help potential test users and response planners make sense of all these tests by constructing a database of COVID-19 test information. So Chenny, can you describe that effort? How did the team come together and why did we start it? Yeah, of course. I think largely thanks to BeNext, you could tell was very cognizant early on, uh, just how serious the impact of SARS-CoV-2 would have. And Incutel knew early that a response was needed. So our executive staff stood up three teams, each focused on a different part of the response. These three teams were data, health, and testing. And the data team looked at 
I would say COVID-19 as a big data problem. So basically try to find ways to use data to help make sense or help with the pandemic response. The health team is more tailored towards telemedicine and PPE and other supplies, essentially how to use technology to facilitate either healthcare in a remote environment um, and how to get supplies either produced or sent to where it's needed faster. And so the last team, the testing team, which is the team we are on, this is focused on diagnostics. So when we were formed, and this was early April, and I would say even now there's uh, there was a significant amount of uncertainty around the COVID test, as you said, Kevin. We all know that not all EUA tests or approved tests are created equal. And the process of figuring out the just basic information of a test and also the performance characteristics of that test takes an incredible amount of time. And that's precious time away from these healthcare lab professionals or public officials who would need to actually focus on the the response. So when we asked how we could help at the beginning, our starting point was simply let's help make sense of the noise for these hospitals, public health officials, and whoever's buying tests to just help them sift through the now 200 plus authorized tests out there in a user-friendly way. And a little bit about the team. This required a big team at Incutel. We pulled from all corners of Incutel. So we have obviously BNX, virologists, epidemiologists, data scientists from the labs, the designers from labs, our network engineers, investment staff, and um, obviously PMs like myself. Thanks. So what kinds of vetting did we do? I mean, can, can you talk about the development process a little bit? How did, the, how did it come together in early versions and, uh, and, and whose opinions did we seek? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, when we started off, Kevin, you're, I would say we have the experts in the BNEXT staff, right? So you guys are both practitioners and also part end users. So we kind of came up with a prototype of what are the most important information that we need to know about a test. And so that formed the columns of the database. Essentially, if we wanted to sort tests based on certain characteristics, what are those four to six things we need to know right away? So we built a prototype off of that using the approved tests at that time in April mm-hmm. timeframe, which I think was around 100 or so. And then after we built the prototype, we then used our um, network internally, different folks at FDA and other public health officials um, around the country to just say, look at this prototype. What do you think? Is this helpful? And then from there, we got feedback on, well, we would really love a column to list out the sample types or be able to alphabetize or sort out different characteristics about that test. So that kind of informed us on how to change the database. And then from there, I think Tommy can talk more about this, but there was also a need to understand the performance characteristics in a very simple way, even for someone who doesn't have a background uh, as like a virologist like yourself. So someone who is purchasing a test maybe for an employer who doesn't have a background in this, how do they quickly understand, well, this test, how does it compare with another test and which one should I buy for for my population? Thanks. Yeah. You know, um, those were really some terrific discussions that we had when we were showing prototypes around. We talked to people at Harris County in the Houston area. Uh, They have a very large population, of course, there. And that team was obviously was then and still now uh, in the thick of the response and they have they themselves have a need to source tests and perform them so their their opinions were were quite valuable we also talked with other folks who were looking at testing outside the united states find dx is an ngo based in geneva they have a, a separate uh, accumulation of data on on tests as well and so their views were very helpful and of course we 
also got to brief the database and this effort to lab managers on a nationwide basis. The American Public Health Association has a weekly call for public health uh, laboratory managers around the country, and uh, we had the, the privilege to brief them and get their feedback as well. So uh, let me just say a couple words about how the database works. As Chenny mentioned, we have a number of the tests have many different characteristics. We picked the ones that, that we, uh, along with the folks that we spoke to as we prototyped this, thought were the most important to have to be able to search and sort on. The data is all sourced, all the, the, the data in, the, in our database is all sourced from the FDA's website in which they list the emergency use authorizations that are in force at the moment. We picked that as our primary data source because uh, our, our focus was on testing that was being done, that is being done in the United States. And uh, only tests that have FDA emergency use authorization are authorized for use in the United States. However, if you go to that website, you'll find that all of the information about the tests is buried in separate documents, not easily searchable out of that database. And so it was a large team effort within InQtel to scrape the data and to continue to scrape that data as new tests are, are authorized, put it into spreadsheets, which then our systems engineers automatically uh, convert into the online database that folks can visit now. So um, the, for listeners at home, you can search on the company's name, the name of the test itself, the type of the test, whether it's laboratory performed test or service, whether it's a test kit, if you are the, the owner of a piece of uh, laboratory testing equipment and you want to know what manufacturers of tests make a test that's compatible with your equipment, you can search based on that. And there's a handful of antigen tests and so if you can search specifically for those, uh, you can search by instrument platform. And you can also search on sample type. The, the majority of tests have been validated for use with samples that are so-called nasopharyngeal swabs. Those are the famous swabs that uh, feel like they go a mile into, into your head when you're being sampled. And if you have a very large supply of those, you can find the tests that are approved for use with nasopharyngeal swabs. An ideal in the future, um, and is, well, actually that future is here for some tests, would be to use an easier to, easier to collect sample such as saliva. And so if you want to find tests for which saliva is the input, you can choose that. But now, significantly importantly, you can also uh, click through our database into a, a separate application for which Tommy is largely responsible uh, and for which we're very grateful that allows one to examine the performance of each of the assays. So Tommy, can I have you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the performance stuff is largely a, a statistical effort, but it's not something that I would say is it may appear to be pedantic, but it's actually not, and it's it's very important. And so may, maybe a, a good way to sort of get into the explanation of that is to take a step back and say, what outcome is a healthcare professional looking for when they administer a test? Uh, they're trying to get answers to one of two questions. If the test comes back positive, what is the likelihood that this person has the disease? Or if the test comes back negative, what is the likelihood that the person does not have the disease? That seems pretty straightforward, um, but unfortunately, the there there are four statistics that calculate accuracy related to diagnostic testing, <laughs> and the two that you might hear about most commonly with your reading news articles are uh, sensitivity and specificity, uh, and those are calculated in some sort of performance study that 
manufacturer will will do before they take their test to market. And so what what do those two terms actually mean? Yeah, great question. So sensitivity is uh, essentially the fraction of people who have the disease uh, which receive a positive test in this uh, study. And specificity is sort of the inverse of that. It's the fraction of people that don't have the disease that receive a negative test. And, you know, that may seem pretty straightforward to say like, hey, this answers all of our questions. Uh, unfortunately, things get a little bit more complicated because sensitivity and specificity are calculated when you already know who has the disease and who doesn't. And, and the reality is when we're administering these tests in real life, we, we don't know. And so to get at those, you need these two other statistics called positive predictive value and negative predictive value. And positive predictive value is the, the likelihood that a person has a disease given that the test came back positive. Negative predictive value is the likelihood that they don't have the disease given that the test came back negative. The challenge, of course, is that while sensitivity and specificity are uh, characteristics of the test, right? We do a trial, we calculate them, and here it goes with the test. Uh, unfortunately, PPV and NPV are functions of sensitivity, specificity, and the disease rate in the population. And that last thing is something that in practice we, we may not know. And so it can make uh, interpreting the results of diagnostic tests more challenging than it might seem outright. So from that, what we've done uh, in the performance side of this application is uh, we've calculated PPV and NPV across the whole range of prevalence that you might encounter, all the way from zero, nobody has the disease, all the way up to one, everyone in your population has a disease. And so you can take the data that are reported by the manufacturers for sensitivity and specificity and see how those translate into PPV and NPV. And so that if you have some inclination of at least the range of prevalence of the disease in the population that you're testing, you can have an idea of how the test may perform under real world conditions based on the reported data. Thanks. And because this is audio only, uh, the listeners can't see the, the wonderful visualization that uh, our colleagues helped us construct. But almost more to the point uh, for some users, Tommy, uh, you did something that I thought was really ingenious and that got great reception within InQtel as well. Uh, and that was to create the app in such a way that as one uh, changed that variable, an actual set of English text that described the performance of each test, that English text actually changes itself with updated numbers as you move that prevalence slider. I thought that was really, uh, that was really clever. Yeah, thank, thanks, Kevin. Yeah, the something that I've I've learned painfully over the years by getting it wrong is that for most people, math and probability is not intuitive. But saying something to somebody in plain English is, and so with with that aspect of the app, we wanted something that could resonate with people who you know may have trouble grappling with you know basically a depiction of math, which is what mm -hmm. the, the graphic is. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so there they can select prevalence. So say, I think 5% of the people in uh, my jurisdiction may have SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and then you get this paragraph that says, well, given 5% and the data on this test, here's how many positive tests we would expect you to come back if you tested at that 100,000 people. Uh, of those, here's how many 
uh, are likely false positives. Here's how many are likely false negatives, true positives, true negatives. Mm -hmm. So that you know you can take these sort of obtuse probabilities and and turn them into more concrete numbers that might uh, be more easily digestible. So yeah, the, the in addition to that, of course, as I said, there's there are graphs and also the the app imports the data from the from the data source, and so there's really something for everybody in the application, right? There's there's visualizations, there's data that you can further export, uh, so data scientists can play with it and and uh, test our test our performance. Uh, and then of course, for those who are less mathematically inclined, there's English. Uh, so yeah. Uh, <laughs> Kevin, can I also add a point about yep, Tommy's please. app? Because um, those are all important points, but he also adds in the, the flu side by side to give a baseline. Right. And I think that yes. text really shows the difference there because mm -hmm. I mean, if you read the last line for the worst case scenario for an for influenza diagnostics, mm -hmm. it'll say like a hundred thousand people if they were tested, um, you could have up to two thousand or so errors. But then you look to the left, and we have these are EUA approved tests, and we have tests right now out there where it says if a hundred thousand people are tested, up to six thousand could be errors. So mm -hmm. that's more than double the amount of errors a, a flu test would have. So I think that gives people a very clear baseline of there are authorized tests out there that are significantly less accurate than we think they could be. Now, that's an excellent point, Jenny. And a lot of that is due to the fact that uh, these emergency use authorizations are being issued on the basis of far less data than we would ordinarily see diagnostic tests and their manufacturers needing to submit to FDA for full approval. We don't use the word approval uh, regarding these tests because that is a particular term of art with FDA. These are authorized tests and they are authorized for the duration of uh, so long as FDA believes that there's a need for these tests uh, right now in the, in the teeth of the outbreak. And in fact, that was part of the positive feedback that we got from some of the folks that we showed uh, prototypes of the app. Uh, they really liked seeing the, the comparison with a, a, a flu antigen test Part of that visualization for folks uh, who will go visit the site uh, is that there are some there's some shading around the performance curve that reflects the that uncertainty. That shaded area of uncertainty is much more narrow in the flu uh, illustration than it is for the vast majority of the um, of the COVID-19 tests. The tests do remain important, and we we don't mean to imply here on this uh, podcast that people should avoid testing. <laughs> Uh, more than a million tests are being performed uh, daily in the United States. Uh, and given the numbers of folks who are infected and the number of cases that we're seeing domestically and worldwide, there are studies from the Rockefeller Foundation and others that say that even at that rate, the, the amount of testing we're doing in the United States is not sufficient to get the fullest picture possible of the extent of the outbreak. By their estimates, five to 10 times that number of tests and perhaps more uh, since their analysis was performed uh, when we had far fewer daily cases than we have right now. As of uh, today's recording, we're approaching 200,000 cases a day, uh, which is um, really a, a staggering number. Do you mind if I, I ask us to, to, to take a step back? Because I think you, you and Chenny brought up a really good point that I want to make sure doesn't, doesn't get lost or, or at least is underlined and has an exclamation point next to it. You know, the fundamental issue looking across uh, the tests and comparing the SARS-CoV-2 test to, say, the flu test or, or, or any sort of diagnostic test that 
you know, has FDA approval and is in common use now, it's not so much that they're inherently less accurate or less reliable than these tests that we use now, um, but rather that because these needed to get to market quickly uh, and people needed them because of the emergency, mm-hmm. uh, they're often going out with, with less data mm-hmm. uh, behind them. So where you might see, you know, the flu test says under, you know, certain conditions, you may end up with 2,000 errors and the SARS-CoV-2 may be 6,000 as from Chenny's example. Really what that's saying is that the confidence interval around where we think it would be would be wider. Mm-hmm. And so inherently, uh, because there's less data, it's wider for the SARS-CoV-2 tests and that number is a little bigger. But um, that doesn't mean it's less reliable. We just don't know as much. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's a that's a function of the statistics, as uh, as you well know. That's right. No, that's a terrific point. And 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 goes back to emphasize um, my statement earlier of one should not be avoiding testing or minimizing its importance uh, because we are because we are where we are in terms of having the the data that we uh, that we would like to have. So coming up on the horizon, of course, uh, I, I mentioned that. Uh, uh, this week, the first at-home antigen test received emergency use authorization from the FDA, and more such tests, uh, both molecular and antigen, are under development by a number of parties. Some of them use smartphones, then their cameras and cloud computing to help, and image processing to help users at home read the outcome of these tests with uh, with greater accuracy. And there's also a number of, to boost the number of tests, uh, there are some laboratory tests efforts to create what is called pooled testing and that is to that is to simultaneously test the samples of multiple people in single laboratory reactions in an earlier edition of this podcast a few months ago we interviewed researchers from Ginkgo Bioworks which is a prominent synthetic biology company in Boston and they're developing uh, such a pooled test and in the coming weeks we're going to touch base with them again uh, for an update on that effort um, I understand that test has already been is, is in development and may already have been uh, submitted for uh, emergency use authorization uh, from FDA. So we'll hear more about that soon. And we're also planning to host a discussion with folks from Kylos Genetics, an IQT portfolio company that is also developing a pooled, test be- uh, pooled testing method based on their novel uh, targeted sequencing technology. And so those are two of such efforts. There are more of them around the country. With the surging number of cases in the U.S., Testing for COVID-19 is more important than ever, but again, testing alone isn't sufficient. Social distancing, wearing a mask, and limiting travel all worked really well to decrease the spread of COVID-19 earlier in the year, and they can still work to decrease the spread of the disease, uh, and we're going to need to use all of the tools uh, at our disposal to really knock down the incidence of of COVID-19. So listeners can access the database and the performance app by going to covidtestdb.com. And for more context and background on the effort and other efforts to uh, catalog and uh, provide information about COVID testing, please see uh, our website at bnext.org under COVID efforts for a background paper that describes the effort and more COVID test information. So uh, thanks to my colleagues, Chenny Zhang and Tommy Jones, for appearing with us on the uh, on the podcast today. And thanks again to our producers, Kristen Zender and Carrie Sassine, and our terrific recording engineer, Matt, from HeartCast Media. Until next time, be safe and stay well. <laughs> <laughs>